just want to say I love you guys. Thank y'all for being here today. If you're visiting, my name's Kyle. I'm the pastor here, and I am genuinely excited to have you here today. Uh, we are starting a new series today in John, and so if you have your Bibles, you can go ahead and turn to John chapter 1, and uh, I'll give you kind of a brief overview of what John is. John is one of the four Gospels, right? Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Uh, John is written by a man by the name of John, son of Zebedee. All right, so this is one of the original 12 disciples. John was also considered to be the beloved disciple. He was the one who was closest to Jesus. Um, I'll bring all that up because here, uh, very early on in John, you see John the Baptist inserted, but John doesn't include the words the Baptist afterwards. Uh, and so it could get a little confusing. So I want you to know these are not. this is not John the Baptist that writes this. So the same John that wrote this wrote 1st, 2nd, 3rd John and Revelation. And so uh, anyway, here we are. Uh, so the thing about John is, is he sets out and he writes a gospel a little bit different than what Matthew, Mark, and Luke did. John writes in a way that he's wanting to introduce you to Jesus right off the bat. And the reason he's wanting to do this is because his whole point of this book is that you would see Jesus, and in seeing Jesus, you would find life. Amen? And so the word life appears around 36 times throughout John, which is far more than any other New Testament book. And so um, anyway, John's gospel is uh, it's written not only to inform us or our minds about Jesus, but to inflame our hearts about who he is and what he's done also. And so uh, I want you to think of John a little bit like a tour guide, because if you set out and you just open up John and you're kind of looking for like a gospel focus within John's gospel, it could look like trying to find a tree in the forest. Like it's just a, it seems like an exercise in the obvious. And so more or less what we've done, or what John's done here, is instead of being like showing us a picture of a forest and saying, hey, find a tree, uh, he's invited us to walk through this forest with him, and he's going to uh, show us Jesus firsthand. And so we're going to get to read about these things. And again, in so doing, you'll find life. Uh, John is saying, as we start this out, he's saying, you've got to see Jesus for yourself. There's so much more to Jesus than uh, and what he's done for you than you could possibly imagine or even hope. And so we don't have to guess, though, why John wrote the book. John, in chapter 20, he tells us, he, he says there that I chose particular stories, uh, works, miracles, actions of Christ, words of Christ, so that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah. That you may believe that he is the Son of God and that by believing that, you may have life in his name. Amen? And so this is the purpose of John, and this is why we're here. So uh, I just pray that as we start this, and I want you to pray along with me as we go through this series, and it'll, it'll take a little while, uh, and we'll break it up over um, weeks and months and things like that. We'll stop, and we'll come back to it at times. And so, uh, we're, But we're starting the journey today, and as we go through that, I just pray that you would... Ask the Lord to show you himself in a way that you haven't seen yet. And, and as you pray that, trust that in so doing, he'll give you life. Amen? All right, well, let me pray that for you and for us today. Father, we come to you uh, with many circumstances on our mind. We come, with you, uh, come to you with uh, lots of emotions and thoughts going through our head from the week and 
all that's gone on. And so, Father, now is our moment where we rest in your presence. We open up your word and we ask that you speak to our hearts. Lord, we pray that in so doing and hearing your word, that the Spirit would give us a life, uh, that these words would help us to grow in our faith in you and our love for one another. And Father, as we open up John, we pray that you help us to see Jesus in a brand new way, a way that would grant us life no matter what circumstance we're in, whether unbeliever or believer, um, whether seasoned believer or brand new believer. Wherever we are, Father, I pray that you meet us now. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. So, uh, I enjoy books. I enjoy stories. I like reading. Now, it wasn't until recently that I enjoyed reading. If you'd asked me if I liked reading all throughout school, the answer would have been an emphatic no. Uh, in fact, all I ever really read were spark notes, right? Uh, they were very helpful to help me get through uh, high school and college uh, and not much else. And so, uh, anyway, so I, I, it, but as I got out of that, I just started to pick up books and I found. Uh, that I really enjoy going on the adventure that a book can give you, just holding that book in your hand and walking with the author wherever he wants to take you. I, I find this enjoyable. And so some of the things I like is I like to read biographies. I like to read stories uh, about people, about their life. I like to read uh, particularly military-type stories. I enjoy those. I enjoy reading about our military. And, and here lately I have... Uh, been able to dive into adventure stories with my boys, just reading to them before we go to bed. Now, I've, I've read and I've experienced different tragedies, and I'm not much of a fan of tragedies. In fact, I'm not sure who outside of hog fans could be fans of tragedies, uh, because you, you just have to be a fan of a tragedy to be a hog fan, right? And uh, so anyway, that's the, that's the last gig, all right? That's it. Oh, that's, that's the rest of the salt I have in my salt shaker up here. So, But to me, one of the most important components of a story is the prologue. Like, set this story up. Help me go on an adventure with you. I want to see in my prologue when I'm reading it, uh, I, I want it to grab my attention. Right? And that's what the author sets out to do. That's what we set out to do when we write anything. Is we want to grab the reader's attention uh, as we dive into that thing. And so recently, my boys and I, we finished The Hobbit together. I love The Hobbit. So much fun, right? Not the movies. The movies, uh, in fact, we rewatched the movies after reading The Hobbit, and I couldn't believe how much was different. I don't even like the movies anymore. So there you go. And that's the way it goes, right? That's what snobby story reading people say. And, uh, and, and so we finished The Hobbit, but one of my favorite things has always been about The Hobbit, probably because I read it several times and never finished the story, uh, was the prologue. Like just the, uh, it's called, the first chapter there is called An Unexpected Journey. And, and it's this, it, it's the picture of Bilbo, right? He's at his house. This wizard comes up to him and begins to tell him uh, or just kind of talk to him and, and, and make small talk. And Bilbo thinks he's trying to sell him something. And so he shoes him away, right? And uh, the whole idea there is that Gandalf wanted to invite Bilbo on this journey. And so the whole first chapter or so is spent setting this up. These dwarves begin to show up at his house. It's pretty humorous. There's a lot of fun things taking place. Uh, but throughout the prologue, what you have is great character development, 
You have great storyline development. A plot line has begun to get developed. Uh, you've got humor. You've got mystery. You've got all these things that are just inviting you and it's drawing you into this story. Now, I say all that to say this. This is what the first 18 verses of John are. John 1 through 18 is a prologue. This is John inviting you into the story of Jesus Christ, the most important story that you'll hear. And so what John does is he gives you a big overview of his gospel right here in these first 18 verses. And so uh, I just want to set this, uh, wanted to set it up that way. Uh, and so what John wanted to do was, is John knows that I'm going to be writing this and I want to introduce people to Jesus. All right, this is what the Gospels are about. They're introducing us to who Jesus is. And so John pins this with the question in mind of who is Jesus? Everybody knows that when you set out to write something or give a talk or do anything, one of the things you want to do is anticipate the questions you may receive. And so if a man were to mention Jesus and just start in the middle of Jesus' life and here's who he is, people are going to want to know where did he come from? What's he about? Why is he here? What's going on? And so John sets out to do that here. He wants to take us on this journey with him. And so his main purpose in these first 18 verses is to introduce Jesus, essentially answering the question before people could even ask, who is this Jesus? Who is this Jesus Christ that you tell us about? And so that's what we're going to do with our time today. And so let me read here uh, these first three verses in John chapter 1. It says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. All things were created through Him, and apart from Him, not one thing was created that, was, uh, that has been created. All right? So point number one today, if you're taking notes, Jesus is God. Jesus is God. This is really the main takeaway from these first few verses. It's really the main takeaway from all 18 of these verses. This is what John wants to introduce you to, that Jesus is God. Jesus here is called the Word, and we'll see that clarified in a moment as we continue reading. But in verse 3, what we see is what it means for the Word to be God. It says, all things were created through Him, and apart from Him, not one thing was created that has been created. So what you notice there, if you, if you take a long look at it, is that the Word was not created. Amen? And so what we know from that is that the Word existed. Before the beginning of time, there with God the Father was God the Son, Jesus Christ. And so you see the first two persons of the Trinity together. Jesus always existed. And so John says, in the beginning, and he's able to say this with confidence. This is what he knows after his time with Christ. He knows that Jesus is God. After all that he's seen, after all that he's heard, after what has taken place, he says confidently, Jesus is God, and that must mean that in the beginning he existed. He just existed. From the very beginning of time, Christ was there. And so he is eternally one with the Father as God. And as with any good prologue or good, any good introduction to a story, we must learn who the main character of the story is and what he's about. And that's what John is doing here. John's gospel is different from others in this regard. 
If you read the other Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, what you see there is they provide a human genealogy. Now, they're not denying the deity of Christ. They're not saying that he's not God. They just trace it through humanity. And so you can go and read that. It's quite telling. It's really incredible. But what John does is a little bit different. Instead of telling his human genealogy and walking through that for his first 18 verses, he says, let me show you how Jesus is exactly who he said he was. Let, Let me show you what that means. And he provides these details that show that he and the Father are eternally one together. And and he existed at the beginning of time with the Father. So he gives us his eternal genealogy, if you will. Now, this is one of the first first truths about Jesus that we need to understand, is that Jesus is God. My little boy, Bear, who's two, we've been walking through Uh, There's this book out there that I recommend parents pick up. We really enjoy it. It's called the New City Catechism. And uh, it's a catechism written to help adults, but there's sections of it that are written for kids also to help kids understand big truths about God and to memorize some of those things together. So we've been walking through these uh, lately. Now, Bear, he he wants to repeat them after us, uh, but he's gotten to where, after the very first one we went through, he's gotten to where what he says all the time, anytime it's time to go over this catechism in the morning for a family devotional, he says, he, he just automatically says, Daddy, 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 Jesus is God, and he's just so excited about it, right? And we just, we just praise him for it. We're, we're excited that he's doing that because that's one of the first things that someone needs to understand about who Christ is, is that he is one with the Father, which means that we can trust every word that Christ utters. We can believe every action that is written about him, that because Jesus is God, what we know about God is that he is faithful Amen? That He is good, He's merciful, that He's full of grace, He's full of truth, that He sent His Son to rescue us. Amen? And so what we have here in Christ is we have someone that we can believe. But not only can we believe what they say, we can believe who they are, and we can trust them, trust Him fully. And so John says, this is Jesus. He's eternally one with the Father as the second person in the Trinity. Jesus is God. Colossians 2.9 says this. It says, for the entire fullness of God's nature dwells bodily in Christ. The entire fullness of God's nature dwells bodily in human form in Christ Jesus. And so we'll deal with that more in a bit. But for now, what I want you to know is that Jesus is God. He can be trusted, and everything that John will tell us throughout his gospel happens because Jesus is eternally one with the Father, and he's on mission from the Father. Amen? And this is what John is writing about. The second thing we see is, and let me read these verses to you, John 4 through 13. In him, in Jesus, was life. And that life was the light of men. That light shines in the darkness, and yet the darkness did not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. Now, this is John the Baptist. He came as a witness to testify about the light so that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but he came to testify about the light. The true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He, speaking of Jesus, was in the world, and the world was created through him, and yet the world did not 
recognize him. He came to his own, talking about humanity, and his own people did not receive him, talking about the Jews. But to all who did receive him, he gave them the right to be children of God, to those who believe in his name, who were born not of natural descent or of the will of the flesh or of the will of man, but of God. Verse 14. Sorry, we're stopping there. I want to keep reading, but we're not. So the second truth we have today about Jesus is that he is the promised Messiah. He's the promised Messiah. So in these verses, what we have is we understand that Jesus was the Word, and in the beginning was the Word, in the beginning, and, and he was the Word was God. We have that. And, and so now in these verses, what we see is why. Why did the Word come to earth? Why is John writing this story? He's writing this story because this is the story of the promised Messiah. Jesus is the life-giving light of God sent to shine in the dark or in the sinful world. And with Him, He brings spiritual life for all who believe. For all who place their faith in Christ, there is life. He is the light, and the darkness has not overcome Him. And so if you'll imagine being in a dark room, and I know you've heard this illustration, but you imagine being in a dark room and you light a candle and it gives light to the whole room. In the same way, this is what Jesus does. The darkness doesn't overcome the light of the candle, and in the same way, the darkness has not overcome the light, which is Christ Jesus. It cannot, it will not. We'll see later on in John 16 that uh, he, Jesus says, Take heart because I have overcome the world. And what he means by that is I have overcome the darkness, the evil, amen, the fallen world. And so John the Baptist here in these verses was sent from God to testify about Jesus as the Messiah, the Son of God. Now, this is significant, and I'll tell you why it's significant. This is significant because at the end of the Old Testament and before the beginning of the New Testament, you had 400 years of silence. God not giving revelation about himself in any way. People wondering, when is the Messiah coming? The Jews especially, they had the Old Testament. They're able to read these things. They know what's coming. They know their history. They know that something's going to happen. And as we'll read about John the Baptist, he becomes, as Isaiah says, a voice crying in the wilderness. We'll read that next week. But this is John's purpose. He has come to make straight the path for Christ. What does that mean? It means he's come to proclaim the name of Jesus Christ so that when Jesus comes, people are prepared for that. And they'll believe in him. They'll place their faith in him and receive new life. Amen? And this was John's purpose. This is why it's significant. So that's the time in which God had given no revelation. And so here we are uh, with John the Baptist making straight the way. John was sent to testify about Jesus. Now this word testify, or some of your translations may say bear witness, is the same idea as being in a courtroom. All right, Say you're on trial for something. And, and the attorney brings in witnesses to say, this is what you've done. This is what he did. 
The court is going to look at those witnesses, and if there's several witnesses and the stories match up, they're going to believe the witnesses, right? You'll be doomed if what they're saying about you is true and you committed a crime. Now, what is taking place here is John is saying John the Baptist is preparing the way. He's bearing witness. He's giving testimony of Jesus Christ. He's saying he is coming. Amen? The light is coming into the world. And so, uh, in the same way, John is making way for Christ to come. And again, next week we'll see more on that. We'll actually see a lot more on John the Baptist in the coming weeks too. So John makes this distinction uh, about John the Baptist that I think is really interesting. He says he was not the light, but he came to testify about the true light that gives light to everyone. What a great distinction for all of us to realize is that we, you and I, are not the light. Amen? But all of us are meant to bear witness of the true light. I thought that was a great distinction. Now, in this day, a lot of people looked at John the Baptist as some great prophet, somebody who could be equal to Christ. And so that's why John makes the distinction that he does. He wasn't the light, but he came to testify about the light. And so uh, that was his purpose. Now, the phrase where he says, gives light to everyone, means that God has given every person enough light to be responsible. So through general revelation in creation and conscience, this doesn't, uh, now what this doesn't do is it doesn't guarantee salvation. As we all would agree that not every person, unfortunately, makes it to heaven. Amen? Not all believe. We know that hell is a real place and that hell will be populated with people. But what we have here is that the light either leads us, it'll either lead a person to complete, uh, to the complete light that they find in Jesus, or it will produce condemnation in those who reject the true light. And so the idea here is that nobody goes to hell saying, well, I never heard about Jesus. I, I never knew that he existed. I never knew that I should place my faith in him. The idea here is that everyone through general knowledge, through general revelation, through what we see in the world alone has a basic knowledge that there is something more out there than me. There's something greater at work here. And so people either reject or they receive Christ Jesus. And this is the story of Jesus. We see that he was in the world and the world was created through him, and yet the world did not recognize him. He came to his own, the world, the, all of humanity, and then his own people, the Jews, did not receive him. Now that's really significant because the Jews had a ton of literature and history to go on. They had lots of things they could believe, or they had lots of signs to look for to find the Messiah, to know that he's coming. And still, when he was there, they refused to believe. It didn't look the way they thought it should look. Man, let us not be found guilty of that. And then we have this contrast, thankfully, from just the, 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 the pitiful nature of the unbelieving to this beautiful truth that there is a remnant of believers, that there is a group of believers, there are a group of people who did receive Jesus, 
It's a shift in John's tone as he's writing. He kind of softens the blow from the rejection of the Messiah by showing us a group of people who received Jesus as the Messiah. He says, to all who did receive him, those who believe in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. And so we know that to receive Jesus, the word of God, means to acknowledge his claims, to place one's faith in Christ, and to pledge allegiance to him and to him alone, amen, in the way that we trust him. Now, this is far more than an intellectual assent, because James says that even the demons believe in Christ and shudder at his name. So it's got to be more than intellectual assent. It can't be. We, many of you have told me stories. I've heard stories. I've met people who know probably more about the Bible than most of us in here, yet don't know Christ as Lord. Right? We, we can be intellectual about who He is. We can know who He is in that regard without ever submitting our lives to Him. Again, may we not be found in that place on the last day. And so it must mean more than just intellectual assent. It has to be submitting every part of your life to Jesus as Lord. He becomes great, you become less. We'll see that this is a statement of John the Baptist in chapter 3, verse 30. Uh, it means full submission to Christ. Amen? It's trusting Him and Him alone for salvation. Now, that results in a new identity, an identity which we celebrate a lot around here and with good reason, because without this identity, we've got no hope. Without this identity, we're dead in our sins. What this new identity means for you is that you who were a son and daughter of disobedience are now a son or daughter of the King, of Jesus Christ, amen, of God himself. And so you become a son or daughter of God through adoption. Now we hear adoption, and for whatever reason, the connotation of adoption doesn't line up to the definition of adoption in today's world. At least I don't think it does. For whatever reason, adoption is often misunderstood by people. I think it's because the world treats adoption like a second option. You'll never hear a parent say, well, we couldn't have kids, so, so we adopted. Right? You just never hear a parent say that. Now, you will hear people say, well, they couldn't have kids, so, so they had to adopt. And it provides this connotation in our brain that adoption is second class, it's second choice, that it's unimportant, or that it was just the, the only option we had. And what I want to tell you is nothing is further from the truth about adoption, be it human adoption that we see with parents taking in kids now, and especially with our spiritual adoption into the family of God. What adoption means is to have the same rights as a biological child. When you're adopted into God's family by God through Jesus, you receive the same treatment from God to Jesus Christ. You're adopted into that. You become a son or daughter just as Jesus is. Jesus becomes the greatest older brother you could ever have. Amen? 
And that's what a true picture of adoption looks like. So when we hear that we've been adopted by God, don't think, man, I was just like a second choice or I was just, it was just another option that he had. It's not that at all. God made a way for you, took you out of something and gave you something far greater, took you out of family-lessness and gave you a family, a true family, a family that quite honestly is truer than any physical family you'll ever know on earth. And it's amazing. And so as adopted children, you're not born of natural descent, just as an adopted child is not. You're not born of the will of the flesh or of the will of man, but of God. It's God's supernatural work in you that causes you to become a child of God. And so here we have Jesus as the promised Messiah. He's the light in the darkness And so what that means is, is if in here today you are an unbeliever, you're a skeptic, you're unsure of this, you look around and think, man, you guys are crazy, then I want you to know that you too can trust him as your savior. You too can find a new identity, a new family in Christ, a family that will be closer to any family you've got now. And then if you're a believer in here today, what this means is, is that you can trust him no matter how bad the darkness seems because he is the true light. For both Jesus, uh, for both unbeliever and believer, Jesus is our refuge. As the promised Messiah, he is our greatest hope today. Amen? And so let us find light and life in Christ alone. Let's keep reading. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Praise God. We observed His glory, the glory as the one and only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John testified concerning Him and exclaimed that this was the one of whom I said, the one coming after me ranks ahead of me because He existed Before me, indeed, we have all received grace upon grace from his fullness. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the one and only Son who is himself God, and is at the Father's side, he has revealed him. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. So what we have here is Jesus is God's glory revealed. Jesus is God's glory revealed. And so while Jesus as God was uncreated and eternal, the word became here, when we say the word became flesh, emphasizes Jesus' taking on human form. This reality is the most amazing event in history, that God eternal existing as the word of which nothing was created without him, would say, let me give up that and become flesh for you. Let me give up that, put that on hold, and come down and dwell among you to be with you. Amen. This reality is the most amazing event in history, the infinite 
I, I like this quote from John MacArthur. He says, the infinite became finite. The eternal was conformed to time. The invisible became visible. The supernatural one lowered himself to the natural. This is what takes place when Christ became flesh for us. What we do know about this is that Jesus did not, exi- uh, did not cease to be God. Instead, he became God in human flesh to dwell among humanity for a season, for a time. Philippians 2, 6 through 7 says this. It says, Jesus, existing in the form of God, did not consider equality with God as something to be exploited. Instead, he emptied himself by assuming the form of a servant, taking on the likeness of humanity. So again, Christ gives up glory in heaven to come and dwell with us, to empty himself and take the form of a servant. Amen? And so in Jesus, we see God's glory revealed. Not only the powerful works that Jesus will do and that we'll read about as we progress through this, but also in his character. In his character, we have God's character. And what we see in Christ, we know we see God the Father. He's revealing God to us in a way that God had not yet revealed himself to his people. Because Jesus, as the only son, was the only one who could reveal it. And so in Jesus, we see God's grace. We see God's goodness. We see God's mercy. We see God's wisdom. We see God's truth. We see God's righteous judgment, etc., etc., Full of grace and truth, the text says. We have all received grace upon grace from his fullness, for the law was given through Moses. And then he says, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. So grace is, as most of you are aware, God's unmerited favor. It brings blessing and joy that we don't deserve. It's the beauty of grace. John tells us that God's covenant faithfulness here was ultimately revealed in his sending the one-of-a-kind son to live and die for humanity. It's not that the law was bad and somehow Jesus is good. Amen? Which is how we often see it. The law is bad, Jesus is good. So let's go and live in all Christian liberty. This is not what's happening here. It's that the two work simultaneously Together, both the law and Jesus were part of God's plan of salvation. In the law, God graciously, I emphasize graciously there, revealed his character and righteous requirements for salvation, a standard that you cannot meet. In fact, it's a standard that Romans 3 would say we've already fallen short of. We've already failed. But there's good news. In Jesus, we have that need met. We needed something more, and in Christ, we found it. He is the ultimate expression of God's grace. He is the final atonement of sin and the fulfillment of the law. In Jesus, we have received grace upon grace. In other words, never-ending grace is available to all of you who would receive Christ as Lord and trust Him as such. So again, unbeliever, skeptic in here today, the truth is you're not good enough to meet the standard. In fact, you've already fallen short. We all have. 
We all admit this, that we're all sinners in need of God's grace. The good news is there is grace upon grace upon grace upon grace upon grace available to you in Jesus Christ today. So trust Him. Trust Him. Run to Him as a refuge. To my brothers and sisters in here this morning, those of you who are believers alongside me, grace upon grace means that because there is nothing you did to earn salvation, it said, but by God you were made a child, then there's nothing you'll do to unearn it. All of your sins have been covered by the atonement of Jesus Christ. He came to save all who would receive him, and he will not fell in that. Romans 8 says, and those he predestined, this is Romans 8.30, and those he predestined, he also called. And those he called, he also justified. And those he justified, he also glorified. What do all those words mean? To be justified means that you have been made right with God by his grace. Those who have been justified, he says, have been Glorified. To be glorified means that you have come into his presence in heaven and the fullness of glory, and you're dwelling with him there. Amen. And so one day, all of you in here who are living right now and breathing, which is all of you, I hope, one day we have this awaiting us that will come into the fullness of his glory. What we know in part, we will know then in full. Amen? Because those whom he's justified, he will glorify. He starts the work, and therefore he completes the work of salvation in your life. In so doing, what Jesus has done is he reveals the fullness of God's glory to humanity. Where the law revealed truth, a part of God, the grace found in Jesus' death reveals the rest of God's nature. The law prepared the way for grace to be received. And so the Word, the Son of God, Jesus Christ, puts on flesh. He comes to dwell among humanity to bring light to the darkness and life to the spiritually dead. And He saves all who believe in Him. Amen. And so I invite you today, if you're not saved, place your faith in Him, please. Surrender to Him. Trust Him. And I invite you today, if you're a believer, you had a genuine salvation experience, Christ has raised you up to new life. And I invite you today to rest in His grace, to know that the mission which Jesus starts in John 1 through 18, He accomplishes. Amen? And you can trust Him. You can trust that. Amen.